The creation story in Genesis that we explored last week gives us that, that famous foundational image of God's dream for our world as, as a garden paradise, as a web of interdependent existence of, of abundance equitably shared and enjoyed by all. That image of flourishing. It's an image whose remembrance, remember and honor the Sabbath, is meant to shape the future that we, together with God, seek to cultivate from the soil of our world. Because that's just it. We, we don't live in that garden paradise, do we? We spend our days toiling east of Eden. See, the ancient Israelites, they, they knew a thing or two about living east of Eden, living in a world distorted by ego-driven power, what it was like to be perpetually caught on the underside of the plow of its violence. As a result, their faith, their religion was not a, a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of religion that focused on individual morality and, and either praising individuals for their success, for climbing the ladder, or, or blaming them for the lack thereof. Rather, their ancient faith reflected a communal engagement with the forces structuring their world. This is important to remember as we come to Moses' reiteration here of the Ten Commandments, one of those most famous passages which, unfortunately, through the lens of rugged individualism, has also been one of the most misunderstood. We see it as a rigid set of moralistic thou shalt nots, as a kind of disgruntled religion that we as individuals must follow, as though God's gravest concern is making sure that you don't buy alcohol or, or dance or play cards on Sundays or really just have any fun at all. But look again. Did you notice how in verse 6, before launching into any of these commandments, verse 6 sets the people's deliverance from slavery in Egypt as the context for shaping everything about the commandments, about who they are and who they are, how they are called to live. And then, as we jumped ahead to the Sabbath commandment, after alluding to the six days of creation in Genesis and the call to rest, to honor the Sabbath, it adds, for remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, therefore, the Lord commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. As I mentioned earlier, the book of Deuteronomy is presented as one long speech by Moses as instructions for the people as they are gathered on the shores of the Jordan on how to live peaceably in the land that they are about to inhabit on the other side. As the great Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes about this moment, Moses knows that this new land on the other side is fertile. And he knows that the affluence that such a land could create often leads to an enormous temptation, a crisis, that with everything going well, Israel will think that they can manage on their own without reference to Yahweh. Now, this isn't about God being whiny and saying, hey, worship me. 
Hey, hey, don't forget about me when things are going good. Please. See, the concern is that their prosperity will breed amnesia. That in their prosperity, the people will forget the circumstances that they and their ancestors came from, how God had delivered them from a system of unbearable coercion wherein they had to meet impossible production schedules. Rather, as Brueggemann notes, Moses anticipates that if, that if they're not alert to the God of emancipation, they will end up right back in another system of coercion, this time of their own making. For the fertility of the land will, will lead to a productivity, a system of productivity that will make Israel more acquisitive. And the people will come to think that the goal of, goal of life is to acquire and acquire and acquire. Yes, this is what brings happiness. This, this is what flourishing looks like, having more and more, bigger and better. But to accomplish this, to live by this insatiable system of unfettered growth, one must turn one's neighbors into competitors and threats. And oh crap, is to become Egypt and Pharaoh, is to become all over again that very thing that, that when you were caught on the underside of its grip, you despised. You see, the reference to, to Egypt indicates that the God who gives the Ten Commandments, the God of Moses and Jesus, is never merely concerned with individual morality and decisions, with religion or spirituality divorced from the realities of the world. God is always preoccupied with and attentive to socioeconomic practices and policies, with, with how our society is structured with what it is oriented around. For the God who rests, who insists on Sabbath, is the God who emancipates from slavery, from Egypt's unceasing exploitative work system that refused to allow rest, a day off, that, that saw days off as a sign of laziness. The Sabbath represents a world where God's reign, God's values stand in stark contrast to the reign of Pharaoh, who, who likewise fancied himself a god. In God's world, abundance is the foundation, not scarcity. Therefore, we can rest without anxiety about all that remains on the to-do list. Again, in contrast, in the Bible, Pharaoh represents a world organized like a pyramid with that large workforce on the bottom doing all that labor, producing wealth that flows upward to a small power elite with very little to trickle back down. Because the goal is unfettered growth, is the hamster wheel of anxiety-fueled greed, more, 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 becoming too big to fail, because that is the goal, it is impossible for anyone to really rest, even on days off, if they were to get one. 
And so as a result, even on our days off, we become filled with anxious doing. Even our dreams are haunted by anxiety about making more bricks, about about all that needs to get done. How could it possibly all get done? Hit, Hit a little close to home for me this week as I was reflecting on this. This Sabbath represents a world where there is enough, where we are invited to live from and rest in the reality of abundance, to recognize and give thanks for all that we receive by no work of our own. For that hundred-year-old tree under whose shade we sit. Even more, with the memory of Egypt fresh in our minds, the Sabbath represents a reorientation of the world that's been disordered by our pharaohs. It is to say you are called to create a different order in the world. You shall not recreate or abide by any system predicated on greed or hubris or exploitation. Any system predicated on maintaining power and privilege for a select few, on turning your neighbors into competitors and threats, into enemies. For I, the Lord your God, delivered you from that world so that together we could build a world grounded in abundance and mutual flourishing, a world where there is enough for all, where when the waters of flourishing rise for one, all of our boats are lifted, and where one sinks, all of us experience that, all of us are diminished. A world that works like the garden of creation. We are called to live in this individually, but even more so as this morning's scripture from Deuteronomy makes clear, we are called to cultivate it in our world. To challenge, resist, reimagine, and recreate economic, political, justice, food systems grounded in and oriented toward those things that lead to flourishing. Beginning with those who, like the Israelites in Egypt, have been stuck on the bottom of the pyramid for far too long. And this morning, I want to propose that this is also exactly what Jesus is getting at in our story of the feeding of the 4,000. Now, unfortunately, just as we have largely misunderstood the Ten Commandments as a rigid set of moralistic thou shalts and thou shalt nots, so too have we largely missed the point of this story, of Jesus' miracle stories, because we've, we've focused primarily on the question of, well, did it really happen? I mean, really. Can I believe that? As if the profound truth of this story lies in whether or not we can simply believe it as a historical fact, can accept Jesus defying nature and multiplying fish and bread. And in doing so, I think, ironically, I imagine that Jesus would respond to us much in the same way that he responds to the Pharisees in verses 11 and 12. 
where with an impatient sigh, Mark says, Jesus asked, why does this generation keep asking for a sign? I assure you, no sign will be given to it. So if we set that aside and and look more closely, I think we see something much more profound taking place, something much more world-altering and, I think, actually more difficult for us to give ourselves to. Jesus is gathered there on the side of a mountain with thousands of fellow hungry Jews in the barren desert, and they're starting to get agitated. They're hangry. And if you know the story from, uh, from Exodus, the, the Exodus from Egypt, this should sound familiar. We've, we've seen this story before. Jesus, feeling compassion, feeds them. Turning to his disciples, he asks, so uh, how, how much we got? Uh, seven loaves? They say, seeming to hint at the scarcity of their resources. Certainly not enough to feed thousands, Jesus. Seven loaves. Perfect, Jesus responds. He takes the loaves and he blesses them and he breaks them and he gives them to his disciples and he says, you, you go give these to the people. And finding a few small fish, he does the same and And just as God had done for the hangry Hebrews with manna in the wilderness, out of what anxious hearts could only see as scarcity, seven loaves and a few fish, out of that God provides once again a feast of superfluous abundance. All 4,000 ate and were filled, Mark says. And afterward, they collected seven baskets full of leftovers, what they began with. In a world that insists that there is not enough, that is structured to fuel anxiety about whether you will have your daily bread, trust in God's abundance, Jesus is saying. Trust. But just to drive the point home, the drama continues. And after a brief disagreement with the Pharisees that I mentioned earlier, Jesus gets back into the boat with his disciples and they set off for another town. When all of a sudden the the disciples realize that they are getting hungry. And as they rummage through their rations, they're out on the water, they realize that despite Despite the seven baskets of leftovers that Jesus has just provided for the masses, they only have one loaf with them. One loaf for 12 people. Once again, scarcity. And so Jesus goes into teacher mode, once again using their lack of bread and hunger to illustrate a deeper truth. Building on the themes of scarcity and abundance that they just experienced with the masses, Jesus says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. That is, when you're feeling empty, when I, the bread of life, am no longer with you, and you are hungry, when you're searching for truth, for a way forward, for something to feed not just your belly but your soul, Where and to whom will you look to fill that void? Whose bread will you eat 
beware. Know that some bread, some values, some ways of ordering the world do not yield greater flourishing, but rather death and perhaps a little gut rot. Now, my wife tells me that I have to acknowledge that this is kind of an annoying response from Jesus. And I agree, right? When I'm hangry, I'm not all that interested in a sermon or doing some soul searching. I just want a sandwich, right? Which is probably why the disciples are as confused or annoyed or a little bit of both as we are in this moment. They hear, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod, and all they can surmise is, um, what do you think? Is he, is he mad because we, we have no bread? Which Jesus overhears and perhaps tired from a long day responds, why, why are you talking about having no bread? Church, the point is not the bread or the miracle. When Jesus says, Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. He is speaking about those at the top of the religious and political pyramid of his day. And he might as well have been saying to them, Beware the bread of Pharaoh. That is, beware lest you give yourselves to a vision, to an ordering of the world that, that sounds appetizing, but is in fact destructive. Beware lest you think that getting free being free simply looks like climbing the ladder and being on the top of the pyramid rather than on its underside. Beware lest in your amnesia you recreate the order of Pharaoh. Bringing their day full circle, Jesus goes back to the lesson of, of feeding the masses. Referring to an earlier feeding of 5,000, Jesus asks, how many baskets of leftovers did you collect after everyone had enough? Twelve, they answer. And today, earlier, when, when 4,000 ate and were full, how many baskets were left over? Seven, they answer. Do you still not understand, Jesus asks? Are your hearts hardened? Do you not remember? Again, to be fair, they're, they're really just hungry, and, and understandably, we might be just as confused as them this morning. But sometimes our moments of need, of, of longing, those moments where we are searching, those moments of lack, those are the moments where we learn best. For 12 and 7 are some holy numbers in the biblical tradition. Without knowing that, it's completely lost to us. Twelve represents the twelve tribes of Israel, which is to say that if you trust in God's vision for the world, if you orient your lives, your communities around this principle of abundance rather than scarcity, you will see that there is enough for all of God's people, and then some. And seven... Seven baskets left over adds emphasis to this, for seven represents the Sabbath, the seventh day, represents wholeness, represents the fruit of a world oriented toward abundance. 
where there is enough to simply rest and be, to enjoy this one wild and precious life, instead of spending our days worrying constantly about tomorrow, about all that remains to be done. If we return to our reading from Deuteronomy, we remember again that the seventh day, the Sabbath, is to be for the people of God, not just a day set apart, after which we return to the regular rhythms of the world, to a world ordered by Pharaoh. Rather, it presents an alternative vision for our world, for what all of our days should be. The Sabbath is a vision of God's superfluous abundance that is meant to reorient us as we move through all other time. As Jesus says, the Sabbath was created for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. The goal isn't following rigid rules as a way of getting into the good place when we die but to be reminded every week of the flourishing for which we were created. Both, both Moses and Jesus are calling us to remember that God has delivered us from the order of Pharaoh. They are calling us to partner with God in reorienting this world toward that which cultivates life for all. Beginning again with those who for too long have been crushed beneath the weight of Pharaoh's pyramid scheme. So friends, as we celebrate the Sabbath each week, remember the exodus. Remember the exodus and so honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Remember so that we may be made new. And with us, all the world.